I'm delighted to um, introduce the uh, public lecture in, the, in this growth week. Uh, it's the title of the um, lecture is um, Reforming Education Systems. Uh, it's going to be given by Professor Michael Kramer, who is the uh, professor, the Gates Professor at Developing Societies in the Department of Economics at Harvard University and Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution. Okay, so Michael will speak for about 45 minutes and then we'll have discussant comments and then we'll open up to questions on the floor. So uh, over to Michael. Thanks. So what I'd like to discuss is um, what we've learned from randomized trials in, in education in the developing world. Let me say, uh, you know, back up a little bit about what, those, what randomized trials are. There's a lot of ideological debates in development economics. There's a lot of ideological <coughs> debates uh, in education. People have very strong opinions on, the, on these issues, but you know, there tends to be cycles of, and fashions. One thing goes into is popular, then there's a reaction to it. So over the last 15 years or so, development economists have been, been trying another approach, one based on patiently building up evidence from various settings and seeing if a picture uh, starts to emerge. And so now seems an opportune time to review some of that evidence see if there's any commonalities, or just see if you know, the experience in different places is, is just totally disparate. Let me say a little bit about, about this approach. I'll, I'll talk about my own experience. I spent a year teaching secondary school in Kenya, um, then went off to graduate school. Um, once I then got a job as an assistant professor, once I had a job and could, could afford it, I went back to Kenya to start on vacation. Uh, a friend of mine who was a headmaster of a, a neighboring school uh, had left that job and was started working for an NGO. And the NGO had to pick seven schools. It was going to start working in a new part of Kenya. Um, it was going to pick seven schools to work in. It was a very small NGO. So I talked to my friend and said, you know, what if you picked 14 schools and you started out working, you, know, you randomly, 14 schools that met your criteria for the types of schools you want to work in, and then suppose you randomly chose seven of those and you started the program in, in those seven and then later when you got more money you could expand to, expand to others. I thought this was something that you know, an academic would be in favor of but, uh, but no, nobody in the, in the real world would, would consider. Um, but much to my surprise, he, he liked the idea, he talked to his boss, his boss was open to it and so they did this, and with the idea that they would compare what the impact, compare what happened to, to students in the, in the in, to learning, to dropout rates in these schools that where they'd introduced their program to the ones where they had it, and we started to learn about what the impact of that of that program was, and over time we st we realized well that particular program seemed to have some limitations. Let's try some other things. We developed a relationship. They tried a whole variety of different programs. We got to the stage where we could compare the impact of different approaches to certain educational programs in a similar context. <coughs> Meanwhile, other researchers um, started using the same approach in, in India, in, in, uh, in a number in urban settings. There was a separate evaluation of a very large government program in Mexico. So we start, we have, we have, we now have evidence from many different parts of the developing world on, some, some, uh, on a range of questions. And you know, that's the evidence that uh, from this approach where you have a treatment group and a comparison group, very much like in a medical trial. And of course, the advantage of that approach is that 
if you're trying to make comparisons, with that approach, you, you can be pretty sure that what you're measuring is the impact of the, of the program. If you're just, if you, for example, if you just compared children in private school to children who are, who are going to uh, state-run schools, there'd be all sorts of other differences in family background. It's hard to know you're isolating the impact of a private school. Um, you can do various statistical things to, to get at this, and in some cases people come up with very clever approaches. So I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that that, uh, that that approach, that you know, that the only approach is, uh, is randomized trials, but what I'd like to do today is to, to review the evidence from the randomized trials. cover two broad topics. First is increasing access to, to education. So the Millennium Development Goals call for helping children who aren't in school, particularly girls, uh, get into school. Okay. The, the, the second, and I'll, talk to, I'll provide some brief background on where we are on that, talk about the role of prices or incentives, um, talk about the role of information and, and complementary effects. Um, health, for example. What's the impact of health on education? Then I'll talk about and the basic message there is there's a lot that we know works. And results seem to generalize pretty well across geographic context. I mean, that's a, that has to be a tentative statement at this stage. But it, it looks like it, the, the results generalize pretty well. Second area is improving quality. That's a much harder challenge. Um, quality is currently abysmal in many, in many parts of the developing world. And so to provide a little bit of background on that, talk about the strategy of spending more. Um, talk about trying to create, address some of the systemic distortions, um, and, um, and and review the the evidence that we have on that. Okay. Um, so let me give some background first on the quantity side. So it's important to remember whatever gaps we have now, it's just been tremendous progress. Okay, this is. Uh, from the 40 years till 2000. But um, you know, this is, you know, we're, um, we're now at a stage where 85% of the world's primary school age children are, are in school. There's still 100 million left, primarily in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. Uh, the statistics, perhaps slightly dated, 57% of those out of school are, are female. Uh, most of the people have the school nearby. So it's, I, I don't want to claim there's no role for building schools and um, but the problem is, is often one of getting children who are not in school but have a school nearby to attend one. So one, there's been a, a, a movement in recent years to get rid of fees for education. And, but there's often other, re, other things that are de facto requirements. So I'll give an example of uniforms. So in, in Kenya, as in many countries, um, uniforms are not legally required for school, but if you don't wear a uniform, you're going to feel pretty uncomfortable. Um, and, and historically, you'd often be sent home. Um, we looked at three separate programs that provided free uniforms. Okay, so one was for uh, sixth grade girls. This is all, this is all evidence from Kenyush. One reduced the dropout rate by, by you know, between 14 and 17 percent, depending on how you measure it. This is a $6 uniform. Okay, so you, you might think that the $6 fee wouldn't have that big an effect on such a fundamental decision as to whether to go to school. But it seems to. It seems also to have an impact on the even bigger decision of bearing children. So you, you had a substantial reduction in teen childbearing rates by providing this uniform. Um, for younger students, we got similar results.
third, the third you know, evidence is also very consistent with this. So, so big impacts from relatively small fees. So what can you do if you get rid of school fees, if you get rid of some of the other costs of education, the next step that you could do would be to actually pay people to go to school. And this is what conditional cash transfer programs do. So uh, the progressive program in Mexico, um, so it was a, this is a program that the Mexican government introduced early on. Um, and they, they found there was a pretty large uh, uh, payment relative to the, the income level of, of, uh, of, the, of the people to whom it was targeted. They also saw a big increase in secondary school. So um, this, uh, sorry, the, the, the evidence seems to be pretty clear that money makes it, you know, charging or providing incentives makes a pretty big difference. Interestingly, though, this isn't, you know, the standard economic model might say people are weighing the costs and the benefits. Seems like there's, there's some clues that there's something more going on. So, for example, in the progressive program, people who weren't eligible for the program also started going to school more. That's, that's at, in those communities. There seems to have been a change in the, maybe that's because their friends were going to school. It's no longer so attractive to go fishing or something with your friends. If your friends, your friends are in school, you might as well go to school as well. Maybe there's a change in community norms. Um, you remember the figure on the $6 uh, uniform making such a big difference. That might be, you can't rule out that that's a pure, pure economic calculation, but it suggests that you know, perhaps there's something else going on. Here's some very interesting evidence from Colombia suggesting that more is going on. So they tried a variant of the program in which part of the monthly payment that, that families got if their kids were in school was held back. And it was saved and given at the time that the, the children had to go to, had to pay for school the following year. Um, that in, that, like the basic program, they also ran a basic program, that also increased current attendance. But they found that that, had a, that increased secondary and tertiary enrollment as well. So the timing of the payment can actually make a pretty big difference. Uh, something that you know, might not be predicted by at least the simplest economic model. They found negative spillovers to other children within the home. Some children are going to school, and maybe other children need to stay home and do household tasks. But they found these positive spillovers to, treated, uh, to the friends of the treated people. Okay. Um, the, there's a, uh, a program in Brazil, this is a, a, a more recent study, that interviewed parents, and it looks like parents are actually willing to pay for the conditionality. So in other words, you might, they went to parents who, and said, your child is, our, Brazil has, I, actually let me back up a little bit. As a result of this Mexican study, these programs proliferated. So this started out in Mexico, but in part, based on this very strong evidence, Mexico expanded its program uh, to cover urban areas. In many countries, initially in Latin America, and now increasingly in other parts of the world, uh, adopted similar programs. So this is a you know, very influential study. This, this new work in Bogota um, suggests ways that these programs could, could be you know, tweaked and improved further. Um, Brazil was one of the countries that adopted this program. So Brazil has a conditional cash transfer. The parents will, will receive funds if their children are in school. Um, well, they, they went to, the researchers went to parents and they said, we'll offer you the opportunity to get the funds even if your children don't go to school. So you might think the parents would like this. Turns out the parents didn't want this. They, they prefer
prefer to have the money be, be conditional. Why they wanted to they wanted something to if you wanted to stick uh, to to go to their children with to say look we need you to go to school to get the, to get these funds, um, and that suggests that you know another possible and uh, it might be worth exploring other ways of informing parents about uh, their children's dependence, and that might be another effective way to, to help get children who are not in school in school. Okay. So in a in somewhat you know in middle income countries it's. You, it's in middle-income, highly unequal countries like Mexico or Brazil. Uh, conditional tax transfers for poor families is something that the state can run out of its own own budget. In the very low-income countries, you know, there's some examples of conditional cash transfer programs, particularly targeted to the very very poor. But that's a big, bigger fiscal challenge for the state to take on. So, one approach is to have merit scholarships. So often, so for example, in, in uh, in, in, in many countries, primary education is now free, but it, you have to pay for secondary education. So one approach would be to say, if you do well in primary school, we'll pay for secondary school. Um, so we, we looked at a program in Kenya that provided merit scholarships for girls who were scored in the top 15% uh, on government exams in Western Kenya. So what we found was that the girls who are eligible to compete <coughs> for this scored substantially higher. There were 0.19 SD, the standard deviations. For reference, the standard deviation, a tenth of a standard deviation would be moving from the 50th percentile to the 54th percentile. So think of this as moving up, you know, about 8th percentile points. That's a, in the education world, that's a, that's a pretty big effect. So this was conceived of as something to address access to education, how people afford to go to school. But what you see here is that if you let these girls know that there's girls who might otherwise think, and there's no chance for me to go to secondary school, I can't afford it. If you let them know that if they do well, they, they could afford it, they'll, be, they'll, they'll get financing. Um, they, they score higher. So this actually, just to be clear, this, this page for seventh and eighth grade, this is actually for primary school, but I think it has implications for secondary school. We also saw that teacher absence went down, so this seems to be the community-wide effect. Um, we're just looking at the, at the data on the impact of this extra education that these children got. I, I, I haven't, I have, in general, I'm not going to be discussing ways to address uh, problems in education rather than discussing the impact of education. But we're, we're, one thing we've noticed is that the girls who've gone through, who are in these schools, are now have very different attitudes about gender roles. For example, they're much less willing to accept uh, domestic violence within the household uh, and as, a, as a consequence of, of the increased education. In, uh, in the Colombia <coughs> conditional cash transfer program, they, they, there's another program they tried, which had this uh, merit component. There they had a transfer if you successfully completed secondary school. That led to, led to a dramatic increase in, in uh, enrollment in, in uh, an increase in secondary, but a really dramatic increase in tertiary education. So having some, you know, if you can't afford these programs for, for everybody, um, at least having them for those who do well in the prior level of education seems to be a very good investment. What else can you do? Well, there's some things you can do with everything I've talked about so far costs money. But there's some things that you can do without at, at very low cost. So here are two things, two things that you know, wouldn't just come out of a, you know, the simplest economic model. 
First is just providing people information on returns to education. So this worked in the Dominican Republic where they went to poor neighborhoods and they provided information about what people with different levels of education uh, earned. It turned out that people in this neighborhood underestimated the difference in earnings between, between that, that was associated with education. Simply providing that information led to a big increase in, in the number of people who went on to secondary school. Um, there's some similar results in Madagascar. I should say that the results on conditional cash transfers have now been replicated in you know, many different places, and, and they look quite similar. Another thing that you can do is, is uh, school-based health programs. So many, uh, one out of every three or four people worldwide is infected with worms. Uh, um, and these worms can be treated for pennies per dose. There are very few side effects of those. Testing for the worms is, is quite expensive, however. So one approach that the WHO has advocated is in areas where there's high worm load, just treat all the children in the school. We did this. Um, the program led to a, a kids were absent about 30% of the time. That was reduced by about a quarter when they got the, the deworming medicine. Um, we also saw that the neighboring schools also saw a benefit in health, and uh, their worm loads went down because the disease was no longer being transmitted as much. So the cost per additional year of schooling was about um, $3.50. And pills themselves are, are pennies per dose. The delivery costs a bit more. But if you work out how much you're spending, how, if for every for every additional, if you want to get a full additional year of schooling, how much you have to spend, you have to spend to treat more than one child. The total cost is three dollars and fifty cents, and that's. Yeah, I just I'm going to show you this chart, um, and also give you a caveat for it. This is a chart that uh, the Poverty Action Lab at MIT put together, um, showing the cost, how much does it cost to get an extra year of education? So if you're trying to achieve the Millennium Development Goal of getting children into Here's progressive conditional cash transfers. This is actually on a different scale. That's pretty, it's pretty expensive for a child. Okay. I wouldn't draw the lesson from that that that's a bad program. I think that's a great program for Mexico to fund. If you look at the cost-benefit analysis of this, it looks, it looks pretty good. And it's got a great poverty impact because you're targeting uh, these transfers to poor people. So this is a great program for, for Mexico, for Brazil. Um, if your single-minded focus was we've got a fixed budget, we want to get as many students in school as we can, probably want to work in poorer countries. So we looked at a, a variety of uh, a variety of approaches. Um, so you know, um, if you look at the girls' scholarships, they look pretty good. Um, uh, school uniforms, but school meals. But what's really uh, incredibly cost-effective is treating kids for worms. And what isn't shown on this, this chart, because it's done later, is, uh, is these, these information campaigns, which are even more cost-effective for, for your school than that. So the, um, you know, the lesson I would take away from this chart is there's a lot of things that we can do to get children in school that are great investments. And this is something where we can, you know, we can, uh, we can make progress. Let me actually say a little bit uh, about what we learned methodologically. I don't want to focus on this. But one thing we've learned from this process is that randomized evaluations are actually feasible in a wide range of different contexts. Um, so the results often suggest that the non-experimental evidence is, is misleading. 
So an example of this would be the impact of fees on school participation. So there's been a literature in the 80s where there was quite wide, you know, the World Bank had done studies uh, using the, you know, the, the methods that, they, that were the best available at the time. And they, they drew the general conclusion that it's okay to charge for health and education. They pointed out people were already paying for these things and that it won't have a big impact on demand. And that this turned out to be, this turned out to be wrong. It's just very difficult to, some of these statistical techniques that you, you would use in situations where you can't do randomized trials. You know, sometimes they work, sometimes they lead you astray, and, uh, and, and this was one of them. These results on ways of increasing attendance, and you know, this should be taken with a grain of salt, but they typically generalize pretty well. Um, you know, money, you know, conditional cash transfers seem to have somewhat similar impacts, not necessarily exact same quantitative magnitude, but, uh, but directionally quite similar across a variety of contexts. It looks like decisions, even though money matters a lot, there are other things besides money that matter. So things like information or the timing of, uh, timing of payments to when people need to make decisions have, have a big impact. Okay. So I've talked about the easy challenge. Now let me talk about the harder challenge. The harder challenge is quality. So, you know, some of these programs I've talked about, you know, there's important questions about whether the conditional cash transfer programs, are they leading to actually increased learning? Or are they just getting people into school, for example? So the background here is that quality is just extremely low. I'm from the U.S., and the U.S. people com complain a lot about public education. But just uh, you know, the average science score in Peru is equivalent to the lowest 5% on the US when you make international comparisons. So uh, with a few exceptions, you know, East Asian countries, the poorest countries typically don't take these international tests. Middle-income countries, when they take them, their scores are typically you know, very, very low relative to the, to the uh, higher-income countries. And here's a, you know, to, to this, make this a little bit more concrete, here's an example, uh, you know, a concrete example of a question that children were asked that they weren't able to, to answer. And this is sixth graders. So what's going on? Well, I think you need, you know, just a further background. Education systems in, in develop, developing countries, with you know, some exceptions, are typically very centralized. So the hiring is done uh, through some national ministry, not at a local level. They're often pretty oriented towards elites, in terms of the curriculum, for example. Spending per student, so Spending on education as a fraction of GDP might be comparable to richer countries. But then if you, but there's just because of the different demographic structure, there's a lot more children uh, than there are as a fraction of the population than in a, in a richer country. So spending, and the spending tends to be oriented, more of it relatively goes for tertiary or secondary education uh, relative to the number of students. So spending per primary students, quite low. The budgets overwhelmingly go to teachers. They're often strong teachers unions. Um, so salaries are you know, much higher relative to per capita GDP than they would be in richer countries. And partly that's because people with the high you know, skills required to be a teacher are scarce. But it's also partly because of the, the strong unions. If you've got low spending, if you've got high teacher salaries, and that means that you have to have large class sizes. So class sizes are typically very large. Okay. So it's also the case that incentives for the teachers are often very weak. So I was involved in a survey in six countries of just 
visiting the schools are the teachers there. So on average, 19% of the time the teachers weren't in the school. And I should point out that's a weak test. Sometimes the teachers are in the school, but they're not teaching. So in India, for example, 25% of the, of the teachers were absent from school. But when we visit, only half of them were, uh, were only half the time were the teachers in the class and, and teaching. So what, you know, what can you do about this? Well, you know, resources are scarce. So the first thing you could think about doing is putting in extra resources. And since budgets are primarily a matter of, of teachers' uh, budgets, first thing you could think about would be hiring extra teachers. So was involved in a study in Kenya where school committees were given funds. These schools had about 80 pupils per, uh, per class in, in, uh, in standard one, uh, first grade. They were, they were given funds to hire an extra teacher, split the class in half. What so the class size went from 84 to 46 on average. We basically saw no test score improvement at all. So you know, imagine trying, I can't even imagine trying to teach 80 first graders. You would think it would just be complete chaos. Going from that to Forte, maybe it's still chaos, but you know, we didn't say anything. Um, there's a program in a couple, of some other studies found similar results. In any one of these studies, there are things to quibble with, but um, program in India brought in uh, suddenly to tutor uh, students who had fallen behind, so the remaining students had, had a smaller class size much of the day. No test score gains. Program in non-formal schools in India brought in an extra teacher. These were very small schools, so uh, you might think, well, 80 to 40 doesn't make a difference, but if you bring it down below a threshold, it would make a difference. We didn't say anything. Uh, in Kenya, uh, when pre-uniforms came in, they, they, they got an influx of new students, there's no evidence that that had a, had a negative effect on learning when we tried to tease that out, the independent impact of that out. So not a lot of evidence that reducing pupil-teacher ratios matter. I should say, if you look at the same evidence in the United States, there's a, there's a, there's a randomized evaluation of a program in the US that did find, um, that did find reducing class size made a difference. So you know, what's going on? Okay. Okay, well, I'll come back to that later on. Okay, spending money on teachers doesn't necessarily have clear impacts. What about spending money on non-teacher impacts? So some of the people who are pretty skeptical of spending money on teachers um, are spending money on education in general. Let's say, um, say well, look, if you have a context without, without basic textbooks, there we should spend money on. That's, that was pretty non-controversial before this uh, randomized evaluation approach. So we looked at that in Kenya at a time, the textbook situation in Kenya is much better now, but at the time there was one textbook for every 17 pupils in some, in some cases. Provided these textbooks, no impact on test scores for the typical student, no impact on grade repetition, other, other indicators. So this is looking pretty, pretty pessimistic. Okay. Flip charts, uh, similar thing, similar results. Okay. What's going on? You know, what explains these results? Well, I think to understand these results, you have to think about the distortions in the education system. So you need a sort of a more fundamental analysis. So if you think about that, about this, um, with the extra teacher program, when an extra teacher was brought in, a locally hired teacher, when the class was split and half the class went to a locally hired teacher, the regular teacher, the regular civil service teacher, stopped, they reduced their attendance. So they came less. So it was the weak incentives in the school helped negate some of the impact of the extra spending. What happened with the textbooks? Well, you know, this was a case where I 
probably should have thought about this beforehand or realized this, having, having taught in Kenya. But we broke out the, the, the impact. So we didn't see an impact. This was a relatively small number of schools. We couldn't tease out statistically the impact when we looked at the, the class overall. We then decided we're going to focus in on the students who did well on the pretest. So the students who did well in the pretest, if you compare the ones who did well in the pretest in the treatment schools to the ones who did well in the pretest in the comparison schools, there you saw a big gain from the textbooks. For the others, you didn't. Having taught there, that made, you know, made perfect sense. The students in Kenya are learning in their third language, the, the, you know, these particular students. They have the language they speak at home, and there's Swahili, and there's English. The medium of instruction in Kenyan schools, and certainly by, you know, after the first few grades, is English. Well, these students, they're absent a lot. They've got worms, they've got malaria. Their teachers are absent a lot. Many of these are rural kids. It, they fall behind the curriculum. The curriculum is set in a way that may be you know, perfect for the children of the Ministry of Education officials who are writing the curriculum. But for many rural, rural kids, they've fallen behind. So once you fall behind, if you're getting these textbooks that assume that you're the at, at the you know reading you know reading at a certain level in in your third language, it's going to be hard to benefit from those textbooks. Okay. It is you know the top two quintiles they could they could benefit. So what would you do? So if you then think about this, and you think that a lot of conventional inputs, the impact of a lot of conventional inputs is stymied by structural deficiencies in the system. You know, what can you do about it? Well, I'm going to start with the sort of politically easy things to do, and then I'll move on to the politically more difficult things, and then I guess maybe the discussants will talk about the even more politically difficult things, um, and even more fundamental things. But let me, let me start with things that, that might be you know, more politically acceptable. Um, so there's some inputs. The very fact that the money is misallocated, while it means that some money is ineffective, it means there's also some very opportunities for very effective investments that are not being taken. So um, if you allow a shift in the pedagogy to adapt to the fact that the teachers have pretty weak incentives and that matches teaching to the students' level. By the way, when I say the teachers have weak incentives, I just want to be clear, that's not a condemnation of individual teachers. In fact, you could see it as a, as suggesting that teachers have a lot of uh, motivation because they're, you know, of the, in India, there were 3,000 headmasters surveyed. You know, I told you about the absence rate. Only one out of those 3,000 headmasters reported a teacher being you know, fired for or, or disciplined for uh, for absence. So it's not the fault. You know, if if nobody, if there was no incentives for any of us, it's not clear we would do anything. This isn't a this is a condemnation of the system, not of the not of the teachers. After all, they are showing up a lot of the time without any uh, without anybody forcing them to. Some of them. Okay. Anyway, but given the given this, the the problems in the system in Nicaragua, this is actually very uh, sorry, way ahead of its time. Um, back in the 70s, radio mathematics education. That led to massive increases in test scores. Pro a program in India, computers with math games, that uh, um, led to big increases in test scores. Okay? Those got weaker afterwards. So, so you have fade out, which is an important, I'll come back to. Uh, another study in India with electronic machine or flashcards to teach English, big effects. So there may be some, I think there are a lot of ways to use technology that are, are not effective. One study that's not here because it came out after put these slides together. In Romania, there was a program to provide access to computers that led uh, to people at home. You know that led them to play more video games, and uh, you know. But uh, so it's not that sort of technology is magic, but with the right structure, it can make um, it, it can it can help. 
there are kids who have fallen behind the original, the, the official curriculum. Those kids are sitting in school, if they're, at best they're sitting in school board, at worst they're not even bothering to come to school. But if you have a program to teach them what they, to help bring them up to a level, that can have an extraordinary impact. So the remedial education, there are two programs in India, uh, taking community members who, this is very basic levels of learning. So you didn't need to have trained teachers. These were just community members who are very, very cheap to hire. Um, and uh, you know, very, very big impact. In the Kenya program that I referred to earlier, in some of the schools, the students were randomly assigned to classes. In others, they were separated based on their initial level of learning, their initial level of achievement. You might think that if you separate the children based on their initial level of achievement, that helps the kids who are high achieving because they interact with other high achieving kids, but it's bad for the low achieving kids. Or you might think that that helps the teacher to focus on the on, on the on teaching material that they don't know, rather than teaching, you know, uh, at, at a much higher level above or above where they are. So what we found was evidence for that second theory. The 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 both the high and the low. This is ability. This should really say achievement. Uh, both the high and low achieving students benefited from having the the class split. So they both, if you compare them to kids who are together, both groups gained from the level that they would be at otherwise. Um, okay, so that's so one one approach is to try to provide some sort of to work around the system to provide remedial education to provide um, technology assisted uh, learning, but you still have a fundamental problem with the with the incentives of the teacher. What can you do about that? Well, one question is if you could get the teachers to show up, would that make a difference, or does it not really do any good to have the teacher in the classroom because? Was it believe a newspaper or something? Um, so, this, so work in India uh, provided incentives for teachers, enforced incentives. Obviously, on the rule, on the you know, on the books, the teachers are supposed to be there, but they actually enforced this. Uh, this was in NGO schools, not in government schools, and they saw that in fact the children learned more. So, it it can make a difference. The question is, it's a political question. How do you how do you address this problem? Um, and, and I think that's a, we'll come back to that, and maybe that'll come up in the discussion. <coughs> if you looked at some other programs of this type, they were undermined, uh, you know, they were undermined administratively or politically. I, I won't go into details of, of this. And, it, you know, the NGO, I don't know whether the, um, you know, in an NGO environment, you may be able to do things that, that are hard to do in this. What about another approach is to say, well, we, we don't care about whether the teacher's there, we care about whether the students are learning. So why not put the incentives directly on that? Here there's you know, somewhat mixed evidence. Um, so in Kenya, we looked at a program like this that provided bonuses. We saw that was dependent on the, whether kids finished the year and took the exam and, whether, and what their scores were. We saw an increase in test taking, but there was no impact on dropout. So the teachers, um, we saw, we didn't see any improvement in tests that had a somewhat different format. We didn't see any effect on teacher absence. Uh, but we did see a big increase in test preparation activities outside of school hours. So it looked like, and they were teaching test teaching, test, improved test taking techniques. It looked like the teachers were focused on short-term, short-term efforts to raise their, you know, their, their scores on these exams so they would get the bonus rather than on more long-term fundamental <coughs> learning. We can't rule out that there was some long-term learning, but we didn't see any, we didn't find any positive evidence for that. On the other hand, there's work in India 
which, is, uh, which looks much more optimistic. Okay, so a very similar program. Some, you know, a lot, there, some ways it's very similar results, in other ways the, 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 there's, there seems you know, it's, it's more optimistic. So an increase in the score on which they were incentivized, that's similar. No change in teacher absence, no change in what you see the teachers do in the classroom. Increase in test preparation, but differently than Kenya, they did get increased their test score on, on tests with a different format, suggesting that there was some real learning going on. And the program, in fact, increased from year one to year two. So in Kenya, as soon as you took away the program, his test scores went back down, which is either consistent with fade out or it's consistent with this was just short term manipulation of test scores. Um, we won't, you know, the program in India is ongoing, so it'll be very interesting to see what the long run impact of this is. Okay, so one strategy is to, something that economists would think of naturally, is to create stronger incentives that are linked to outcomes. So some evidence, you know, mixed evidence on that, okay? But, um, but some evidence that, you know, perhaps it's raising test scores by two-tenths of a standard deviation. Another approach, which is very, um, which has been strongly advocated by the World Bank, of trying to get increased community monitoring. So, in Kenya, we looked at a program that where these extra teachers got got um, got monitoring. There was no impact on absence of the contract teacher, but the civil service teachers were more likely to be in class, and there's some evidence of test score gains in, in math and, and some attend uh, student attendance gains. So there's some, you know, some impact of that. The program in Pakistan that provided inherent with information on how their child was doing, what they, were, what they knew, and how, what test scores were for the school. This is in a uh, context where there's often competition among public schools and some private schools within the same village. And that led to, in the government schools and in the low quality private schools, it led to learning achievement gains. In the higher quality private schools, and by this, these are all sort of low, all of these schools are low quality. Uh, we're not talking about elite, you know, elite Pakistani schools. These are just the less bad private schools within the village. Um, they, they, so higher quality within the village, they reduce their fees. So this is a case where information looks like it was good, but very much unlike the, you know, I argue there was a lot of commonality in results on household behavior and sending kids to school. The same thing seemed to work everywhere. Here, when we get to these sorts of issues of how the system works, it seems, much, it seems to be, the, the results seem to differ across contexts. So there are a number of cases where this approach has been less successful. Uh, the study in India that provided meeting, you know, there were meetings to inform the parents about, about how things were going in the schools, no impact. Uh, another program in Kenya, no impact. Uh, progr another program in Rajasthan, um, no. no impact. So. One might think that a lot, I don't think it's clear what's going on here, whether this is a matter of differences in the program or is it matters of differences in the setting and differences in the way the system works. You know, this is something where well, more research is needed. There's at least you know, one tentative hypothesis is that it, these programs are more effective when the parents actually have some effective control. So in the, in the Kenya situation, um, you know, parents are, well, in, in Pakistan that control would, would not be that they don't really have control over the, the public schools, but they can decide where they send their, their children because there's competition. But you know, that's a very tentative hypothesis. Okay. Here's a couple of other things. Yeah, thanks. 
So there's providing incentives to existing civil service teachers. There's providing information to the community. But remember, these teachers are fundamentally hired and fired by the Ministry of Education, not by the local community. So you're working around the edges there. What about more fundamental things you could do? Well, one would be there are two types of sort of bringing power down. One is bringing power to the community level, and the other is bringing power down to the individual parent. So what's the evidence on those? Well, bringing power down to the community level, there's two, two studies with very similar results in Kenya and, and India. And this looks like it can make a big difference, and, and it can also save a lot of money. So in Kenya, it's the same program that I talked about before, where they brought an extra teacher locally hired into the community. So these teachers made you know, maybe a quarter as much as a regular civil service teacher. In the Kenya case, these were fully qualified teachers. They were just unemployed, and, and uh, they were, you know, the, the, the local community could find people to, to hire at that wage. Um, they were much more likely to be in class and teaching than the civil service teachers. Uh, the local community had hired them, maybe was watching them more carefully. They may, to be fair, they may be doing a good job now in hopes of later on getting a job as a, 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 a civil service job. So um, the, they were, um, their students scored, scored higher. So if you think about you know, both higher test scores and much lower costs than civil service teachers, at least in the context you know, where, so we can't say for sure if we fired all the civil service teachers and just went with these community teachers, they would perform as well. But if you have a civil service uh, system and you hire some of these contract teachers <coughs> on top, um, then, that, then that seems to be you know, cheaper and, uh, and, and more effective. In India, there's a, somewhat, there's a difference in the program that these teachers were not qualified as teachers. Okay? So they were, um, they were also less likely to be absent. They're more likely to be teaching. Their, student, their students did better in, the, in those programs. Also, there was this effect of, of students increasing their absence. One thing I should say about the Kenya program is, remember I mentioned this reduction in the civil service teacher's attendance when the contract teacher was hired. When you arrange for some school to empower the local uh, communities, that actually reduced that absence of, of the, the response of, of, the, of the civil service teachers of shirking in response to the, uh, the, the, the contract teacher being hired. So with that, I think that's very interesting because it suggests that even though spending resources, just pouring money into the system, can often have pretty disappointing results, if you have some system reform, then spending money can become more effective. Um, so, you know, that's a, a bit of uh, a bit of you know bright news, I guess. So one strategy of decentralizing in uh, decentralizing to the community seems to be, but you can go a step further, and you can you can. Um, you can actually decentralize all the way to the, to the individual parent. So Columbia had a program where they had school choice. Uh, there was a, there was, they had vouchers to allow children to go to, to private secondary schools. And again, these are not fancy private secondary schools. These were the, the private secondary schools that that's, you know, served the, the poor. Uh, so demand for these vouchers exceeded the supply, so they had a lottery to allocate them. Um, they weren't just pure vouchers. To get your voucher renewed, you had to have satisfactory academic performance. So this combined school choice with some incentive for the students. These people completed more school. They sco uh, scored higher on standardized tests. There's some evidence they were working fewer hours in outside jobs. 
We followed them up. So these were you know, not rich kids, so only about 25 or 30% of them were going to graduate from secondary school, the ones who, who lost the voucher, uh, who went, in, went into the lottery and lost. The winners were 5 to 7% more likely. So that's actually you know, a 25% gain on the base level. And so that, that seems to have been pretty successful. Um, the, we also saw that there were particularly strong impacts for people who applied to vocational, private vocational schools. I haven't talked much about that, but vocational schools, um, you know, the, uh, private education may be particularly useful there. Okay, so, so let me just summarize the key things. You know, price is very important. Uh, if we want to get kids in school, merit scholarships can be promising. Health and providing information are really cheap ways to, to bring that up. Uh, bring up participation. Quality is a huge problem. Just pouring in money doesn't doesn't seem to be as, as successful as one would like at a, at a minimum. Um, um, changing the pedagogy can help. Giving the teachers incentives to show up can be useful if you can manage it politically. Um, having finding ways to to decentralize uh, power either to the community level or to the level of parents it can be quite promising. Let me say, I've talked about the areas where there is evidence, and there's many areas where we need evidence, and there's quite limited evidence. Early childhood development, a lot of the uh, you know, preschool education may be very powerful. More evidence on that would be good. Most of the examples I've talked about have been primary, but we need to understand secondary, vocational education, tertiary education. Some evidence I've cited suggests that changes in pedagogy can have very powerful impacts. I focused on incentives as an economist, but really, Part of the systemic distortion is that power of elites means that people are not being taught in, the, in ways that are really helpful to them. So thinking about how we can change pedagogy may be very effective. There are small tweaks to programs that can make a big difference. We're looking for more of those, often using ideas from behavioral economics may be powerful. Talk, talk about the short-run impact of some of these programs. Understanding the long-run impact will be important. Uh, some things that work in the short-run may not in the long-run and then understanding the system-wide impact of things and understanding the politics of you know, why is it that we have a system in India, a democracy, where teachers are only present 25% of the time. And when it doesn't, unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be a winning political strategy in India to say that, to try to campaign on a, pl a climate change impact. So understanding the political, political economy of this is a, is a very important challenge for people. Thanks. We now have um, three discussants, and the first one is um, Lansana Niali, who is Deputy, Deputy Minister in the Education Division of the Government of Sierra Leone. Good afternoon. I'm very grateful to Professor Kramer for this wonderful presentation and all of those things that you did the research with. The study provides unempirical evidence that my government is in desperate need of, even though it is at secondary school level. The government has taken many interventions over the years, most of which you mentioned, but we do not have the empirical evidence to be able to support how we improve the quality of education as measured by performance in public examinations 
how to lower cost and increase outcome, how to motivate students and teachers to learn as well as to teach, and how we can select which interventions work and which ones to prevent. There are certain small, tiny differences in some of the findings with what we discover or we expect if similar studies are done in my country. First, this study was done primarily in primary schools. Currently, my country is very, very much engaged with secondary school, particularly performance in public examinations at secondary school level. Question is, how do I interpret it or extend this study to affect results as we expected? Poor attendance is not so much a problem at primary school level in my country, or at least there is no statistics to show that. Peer pressure does not seem to have the same impact as it is measured here at primary school level. Peer pressure at secondary school level has very negative effects, leads to the formation of gangs, crimes, violence, and some other antisocial behavior. The lack of effective teaching and learning also is very highly pronounced at the junior and senior secondary school levels. The effect of some of the interventions seems to tally very well with my expectations and hopefully that of our ministry and of the government. Incentives for parents and guardians <coughs> is bound to increase at least attendance and probably by extension performance. We are placing great, great emphasis on pupil teacher ratio. The study seems to indicate otherwise. And I'm glad that the study seems to confirm the pupil textbook ratio to be effective. That also happened to fit in our emphasis at this time. In my country, the role of parents and communities is very vital. For instance, at primary school levels, we have what we call SMC, school management committees, that have representatives from parents and the community to participate in decision making by the administration. And then we also have the Board of Governors, the Community Teacher Association, or the Parent Teacher Association. 
However, reforming the educational system, in my opinion, is everybody's business. And hopefully, it's in everybody's interest. So how could we get good quality education for less price? Finding and funding the most effective and least expensive interventions. Doing the best we can with the least we have. Improvised, create, and invent. Nipping corruption and corrupted practices in the board. Motivating teachers to teach students to learn and parents to get involved. How can we measure quality education? I don't have the time to go into what I've written. I've been shown time. But among the key ways is to measure performance in tests, particularly in standardized tests and in public examinations by the competency of students in the competition for the international and national job markets and by the relevance of education to the system, to the needs and wants of the country, and also to unemployment and to, standard, to stable economic development. We have a series of interventions that works. But in conclusion, I'm simply very, very happy and thankful for this study. An appeal the IGC do the best they can to transform this to Sierra Leone among other countries so we can benefit from empirical evidence of how to save money, how to save costs by doing the right thing instead of doing the things right. Thank you very much. Okay, our second discussant is Gita Kingdom, who's a professor of education, economics, and international development at the Institute of Education, Upper Road. Thank you. Um, thanks, first of all, to Michael for an excellent uh, review of leadership, which I've learned much from. You know, as developing countries as a whole, we've invested over the past 40 years, 50 years, quite a lot in education. Um, education has also been a major area for receipt of aid. Uh, from donors. And reflecting all this effort, education has actually increased. But we know that for much of this period, particularly in Africa, where education has increased, economic growth rates have been very low, even negative, uh, for, for large swathes of this period. And poverty has not fallen. Um, so what is the reason for this? And in fact, perhaps the perception of the British public, recently there was a uh, poll done by the IDS, uh, uh, which is the University of Sussex. And uh, they asked people, you know, what do you think should be cut from the British aid, uh, British budget? And overseas aid was the one thing that people identified that had a very high, uh, very, a large proportion of people were in favor of cutting overseas aid because they perceived that as wasteful expenditure. So perhaps this perception that aid and all this effort in improving education has been has not yielded results is justified in the sense that all this effort has not led to increase in, in economic growth rates and, and, and so on. Um, so why is it? Obviously, one reason is uh, 
fact, uh, we know, now know from research, one reason is that the economic return to primary level of education is very low. And that is exactly the place where we put most of our investment. Secondly, and relatedly, why is the return to primary education low? Is because the quality of that education is so very low. Uh, we know that very little learning happens even for with five or eight years of schooling. So it is critically important to know what it is that improves quality. And Michael's uh, review uh, is a wonderful Bible uh, for those policy makers who are interested. Now, question is, I think the big question is, are policy makers interested? Um, unless policy makers seek such evidence, unless they have the capacity to judge between good evidence and bad evidence and what's reliable and what's not, and unless they uh, desire to act on that evidence, it is indeed you know, less useful, probably wasteful research. Even when it is known that certain interventions work and would have the capacity to really deliver powerful uh, increases in schooling quality, sometimes there are powerful political economy barriers that, uh, that prevent us from being able to, to achieve those. Uh, in, in your review, uh, Mike, Michael, uh, you, you cited this Duplo and Hannah paper, whereby this, you know, the, the, the cameras were used to, to monitor teachers' presence, and they had a large impact on teachers' attendance rates and on child learning rates and so forth. But when this was sought to be replicated with a bigger study, uh, with, 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 with more, uh, you know, teachers who were more highly skilled, higher status teachers, uh, Basically, there were strong political objections to them, and so this kind of a reform couldn't really be brought to bear. So I think what we need to understand better is how to address these political economy constraints. How can these be eased? Is there international evidence of countries where these political economy constraints have been sought to be eased, and what can we learn uh, from those? I know that, for example, Mexico brought in quite a major reform in teacher incentives. Has that worked? What was it that clinched the deal there, and why, why can we learn? Can other countries learn from that? Um, one finding you had was that uh, contract teachers, uh, children taught by contract teachers, do better uh, or no worse than children taught by regular teachers, even though regular teachers have very much higher uh, pay than contract teachers. And it seems to me, and in fact, I've recently done some work on this for India with my co-author, who's sitting here, Dr. Paul Atherton, and basically. Uh, we find that one of the plausible explanations for this uh, difference between contract teacher effectiveness and regular teacher effectiveness is the fact that contract teacher, because of their lower pay, they are less socially distant from the uh, children that they teach. You know, you have had this furious growth in teacher pay, civil servant, uh, civil service teacher pay, and in rural areas, at least. Uh, uh, private school teachers pay and contract school teachers pay is a fraction. It's about one third to one, one quarter of the regular teachers pay. So I think that this vast economic distance that you've got between the teacher and the taught, if a teacher is paid 10 or 15 times more than the parents of the children that she's teaching, to what extent will she take seriously the education of those children, number one? And can this ex also explain the fact that, you know, that, that you, you summarize one of your findings um, of, of one of the studies, namely that, um, if you provide communities information uh, about students' performance and teachers' performance, that doesn't tend to improve outcomes. And it could be because, you know, yes, they are more knowledgeable once you've provided them information, but they are so socially distant, they lack the confidence to be able to hold the teacher and the school system accountable. Um, I think I'm, my time is probably up. Is that right? Yep. Okay, all right. But I've got one or two points, maybe they'll come up later. <laughs>
Okay. And our third discussant is James Tooley, who's Professor of Education Policy at uh, the University of Newcastle. Thank, thank you very much. M Michael Kramer is a very, very much a gentleman, mild-mannered and um, calm. But I just want to remind you of one of the things he said in the context of this as a policy discussion. He said he, he was protecting teachers, but he said this is a condemnation of the system, a condemnation of the system. And I really want us to rec remember that as we, uh, as we discuss this. It, the, system, the government systems of education that Michael, by and large, uh, described um, are condemnatory. They are worth condemning if only 50% of teachers are teaching when they should be in India and other examples from around the world. I, I want to stress that. Secondly, Michael mentioned a few times in passing low-cost, or he said low-quality, but low-cost private schools in Pakistan. And in my experience, people are very much unaware of this phenomenon. And I just want to make a few brief words about that to put some of the other things he said in context. I've written a book about low-cost private schools, The Beautiful Tree, um, available on Amazon.com, worth it, uh, worth $20 for the cover alone, I would think. Um, but um, these low-cost private schools are there across the developing world. So if you like, poor parents haven't acquiesced in the, the mediocrity of government schools, those 50% teachers turning up and teaching. They are going to low-cost private schools, which a lot of research is showing are outperforming the government schools. In rural Pakistan, the, the, um, the uh, LEAPS research shows 33% of children, poor children, in these low-cost private schools. In Acer, it's about 22% in rural India. In urban India, who knows, 60 to 80, 80, 87% I think you found in one of your studies, Gita, in low-cost private schools. And in Nigeria, you know, Ghana, and Kenya, similar sort of picture. So the, the question for Michael about this is, if you're looking at genuine parents choosing private versus public schools, not voucher experiments like Michael was saying, how, how can you measure that? How can you convince policymakers like people and ministers and so on of their worth? Because you can't do, I don't think, do randomized trials. Now, the question to Michael is, can you do randomized trials? If you can't, I mean, some of us in research have got a bit of an inferiority complex because of the work of Michael and others. The gold standard of randomized trials is the only one we're supposed to aspire to. I don't think you can do it in this area. Maybe Michael will tell me you can. If you can't, can we still say something useful? But this means the presence of these low-cost private schools means all the data you hear every day about education in developing countries is wrong. Because it doesn't take into account the children in the unregistered private schools, which are off government radar. So the figure Michael said of 100 million children out of school, wrong. Because it doesn't take into account children in unregistered private schools. Um, in Lagos State, where I work, 50% of school-aged children are supposed to be out of school. If you take into account the children in unregistered private schools, that figure might drop to about 25, 26%. So the figures we have are, are wrong. And also, even when you think about children, the effect of reducing school fees or eliminating school fees, I think Michael spoke about that. I'm not sure this does show increase in enrollment. The only place I've studied it um, is in Kenya. We looked at the, uh, what happened after 2003 when school fees were eliminated in the schools, and sure enough, there was a headline figure of 50% increase in enrollment in the government schools on the periphery of the slums we looked at, in Nairobi, Kibera especially. 
But what those figures didn't take into account were there were many children in low-cost private schools in the slums who had left the low-cost private schools to go to the government schools. So in fact, there was no net increase in enrollment in schools. There was in fact, you know, at most just children moving from one system to another. And later, but I won't go into this now, I've got the time, actually moving back into the private schools. Um, so I, I, you know, I've, I think that talking about data is very important, but what can you do? I liked what Michael said, but little money, because these are the things that um, people are going to like, aren't they, policymakers? And the idea of giving information to parents sounded like a really good thing. The idea of a deworming, um, mass deworming, at such a low cost. I, I read your paper on the way down, um, on the train down from Newcastle today. I got on the phone. I, I'm running some schools in, in rural Ghana. I got on the phone straight away and told my people that we've got to do a deworming <laughs> campaign um, because it seems so so straightforward. I mean, I'm trusting you there, Michael, but it seems like a win-win situation. On that note, I'll close. Thank you. Okay, so Michael, do you briefly want to respond to those Sure, comments? sure. Uh, well, thank you very much for all, for all these comments. They're really uh, very helpful. Um, we'll just touch on a few points. Um, you mentioned the importance of standardized tests at the national level. I think, I personally think that's 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 right. That's very important. It's not something that we have evidence on from this type of study. But I, um, the um, let me come back to that in a second. Um, I, th I agree with most of the points uh, that you're making. One thing I don't think I agree with is that saying that the return to primary education is low. Um, you know, we don't have this type of evidence on the, on that. So we have to rely on other things, other types of statistical techniques. Um, but you know, uh, if you just look at earnings levels, they're typically, you know, this looks like a pretty good investment if you just compare the, uh, we don't know that that's a, strictly we don't know that that's a causal relationship, <laughs> but attempts to tease it out, like Esther Duflo's work on Indonesia, which was looking at very poor quality schools, Indonesia in the 1970s. Just building schools with, you know, oil money comes in, they build these schools, I don't think the teachers are going to be, or, you know, better than in India. Um, they, um, they, they, they found, you know, quite a return, uh, economic return to that. Yes, there's lo been low growth in Africa for a long period. Now there's higher growth in Africa. Um, I, I think there's just a lot of other factors going on, and, and certainly those are very important. But I think uh, education can 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 allow people to earn more, um, and if there's a good policy environment, although they can earn a lot more. Um, do policymakers care? And you know, is this research a waste because if the if the policymakers don't care anyway? Well, I think that I guess I would say two things. First, um, some of the th there's some things that you can identify that are not really politically controversial. If you're talking about cracking down on teachers uh, teacher absence, well, you know, teachers unions are very powerful. If the teacher is the educated person in the village and they they have a big influence on votes, they're they're the person at the polling station. Um, then cracking down on teachers may be a very politically tricky thing to do. Providing deworming medicine, on the other hand, that's something that um, you know may not be. Or even introducing some remedial education program. So th there are also some cases where there are going to be you know, a particular chief <coughs> minister in an Indian state who's willing to take on some some uh, some you know political challenge, and it's a, a bit um, you know braver. Um, the the. Um, just to, you know, as an example, we know that the, the strongest example of this is the Progressive Program in Mexico, where that was a program that very well might have been shut down had it not been for the strong evidence that they had. And because of that evidence, 
speaking. And there are many factors, many political factors that went into its expansion, but, but one of the reasons why that program's now in 30-odd countries is the strong evidence. Uh, you know, in, in Kenya, we all know that, you know, Kenya, I'm not gonna claim that Kenya's political system is, um, is spotless, but you know, when we went to political leaders in Kenya with the deworming results, you know, they, they wanted to support this. When they saw the cost of this, you know, they, they also, even if, even if the, whatever, uh, whatever blemishes Kenyan political leaders have, they're also competing for votes. And if you can find something that delivers benefits at low cost, you know, that can be attractive to them. Um, so they, you know, Kenya dewormed three and a half million kids um, uh, last year. Um, I think the point about social distance of teachers is, is really intriguing. And I, I overall, I agree with your point about understanding the political economy is important. And I think that's one reason why, what, why testing is important. If you have internationally comparable tests, that's something that maybe will try to uh, bring some, some uh, political momentum to change. Um, on the low cost, uh, low cost uh, uh, private schools, I should have clarified. When I said these were low quality, that's high praise because the government schools, as you point out, are terrible. <laughs> so, uh, so let's have low quality private schools rather than yeah. terrible. Uh, t you know, uh, I, I think on the, you know, it, it is true that there are plenty of families who are very poor families who are taking significant amounts of income of their income and investing it in getting their kids into a private school so they can have you know somewhat better education for their. So these schools have, but they also, in India, when we surveyed absence, we looked at the private schools as well. They also had very high absence rates. That's it's, but, you know, somewhat better than the government if, if, you, if you, yeah, and uh, it depends how you tease it out, but yes, probably better. And look, they were paying much less, so. Um, but the, that's why I just, I, I, I think it's important to recognize that, that they, could, they could improve as well. Um, the, I think the, so while some parents are paying, it's also the case that there, there are other parents. And so these studies that, that, that I, I cited were of the impact of, of providing the free uniforms. Those were cases where it wasn't, there were no private schools in that particular area. So, so this is, if there's gonna be, you know, if you're a private company and you can get 20% of the market, that's great. And you, know, you can have a, you know, a business that's a business model that works. And, you're very happy. McDonald's is 20% of the market, fantastic for them. But if, from a social point of view, we have to think about, we want to get not 100% of people in school, you know, close to it. So I think that means that it's important to have, you know, free options available for people. The solution, we don't want to pull people away from bad private schools to terrible government schools. So I think the solution is to put private schools and public schools on the same footing and to make sure that the same programs that are available in in public schools, whether that's free school meals or free deworming, are also available in private schools. So I agree with your overall point that policymakers need to be cognizant of this sector and not treat it as if it doesn't exist, and not try and bias people towards attending public schools rather than private ones. Okay, great, thanks. Um, so we've got a little bit of time for some questions from the floor. Um, there's one here to start with. Um, thank you. Um, just two main questions to uh, uh, Michael. Um, you didn't mention anything about the teacher or teaching training programs. Right. Does it exist? And if it is exist, is it required to become a teacher? Because I see you, the word teacher is, is you have a qualification, for example, in maths, maths teacher, you have qualification in maths, but right. you don't have a qualification in teaching. So you don't know the techniques. 
The second question is about the curriculum. Uh, do they change the curriculum? Do they have a sort of uh, 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 a life cycle? Like, do they change it every five years to meet the little resources? And finally, just comment about the private and and public schools. I think difference in these countries just in the resources, not in the teaching quality. I think the private has more uh, resources, better resources, and uh, maybe more discipline, but they don't have better teaching uh, um, quality. And that's it, thanks. Okay, let's, let's take a few, and then all the panel members can respond to each of your questions. Now somebody in the middle was very fast with his hand before. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my question is to Professor Karma. Uh, first, I just a comments and then the question. Uh, uh, I would love to uh, take your uh, assumptions uh, while making your uh, um, talk. Uh, if I'm if I'm not wrong, your assumption is the you are basically proponent of the utilitarian model of the education in which you consider students as economic units that has to. Uh, um, has to play a part in the economic growth of the society. But if we look at the, uh, the proponents of the holistic model of education, if, I, if you look at the works of the Krishnamurti, if you look at the work of the Parker J. Palmer in USA, if you look at the work of Steiner, they look at the holistic model in which they look at the intellectual, psychological, and the uh, emotional life of a student. But if you just if we just l keep looking on education and economic growth, we will definitely uh, 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 we will definitely come up with the um, dissatisfied youth, which is the example of the not only in the developing country, but as, a, as but in the UK as well. So, uh, would you agree with that? The I mean, the World Bank is uh, propagating this model, which surely is not going to solve the problem. Obviously, we will m m might be able to get better economic growth. But it is, uh, do you think, it, do you really believe it, it is definitely going to solve our problems in developing countries if we follow this model, which is failing in the developing, developed world as well? Thank you. Okay, there's one here, one there, and one there. And we'll take those five questions, and then we'll uh, get the panelists to respond. Um, okay, Millennium, Millennium Development Goals, currently being discussed in New York, I think, still. Um, I'm sure we'd all agree that targets are better if they're realistic and achievable. So what should we do with EFA, uh, primary education free and of good quality for all? From what you're saying, it seems that, that the whole approach over the last few decades has failed in that the quality of, these, of, of, of the state education is extremely poor. And what, you, what is needed is, is systemic change of a fundamental nature. But you're saying that there are real political barriers to that uh, because of uh, the strength of teacher unions, the fact that politicians like to appoint teachers as patronage and whatever. But um, there seems to be relatively little discussion of that. And, and not only is there a failure, it would seem to me, in the, de in, in the developing countries, there's a, there's a failure in the aid community, which basically rants on about quantity, look how much money we've spent and how many children have turned up to school, but uh, 
doesn't seem to be at all concerned about quality and, 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 and is very much um, uh, 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 guilty uh, of, um, of supporting this, uh, these, these decades of, of, of failure. And it was refreshing to hear some, some different points of view today. Okay, we'll have one last one here. I'm afraid we've got to finish promptly at six, so uh, I'm going to have to turn it back to the panelists afterwards. Um, I was wondering, um, it, it seems to me that uh, your discussion of your uh, randomized trials findings uh, are focusing uh, on the policy makers' perspective to a, to a greater extent rather than to the policy receivers' uh, perspective. And uh, I was wondering, um, would uh, the analysis and interpretation of your research findings be different if we go backwards and forwards in these interpretations and analysis of your research? Uh, to, uh, um, looking at both sides, both reversibly, reversibly and irreversibly, the policy makers' perspective and the policy receivers' perspective, uh, how will this change your interpretation and analysis of your findings? This is one question. And the other qu question has to do with your conceptualization of educational systems. Um, the, edu the concept of educational system is a, a rather complex concept which may, may, may or um, kindly include education, formal or informal recognition of education and assessment of this education. Do you actually integrate all these three in your conceptualization, uh, or do you just look at education per se? And uh, if you actually distinguish between them, how, do th how does this affect your further policy implications and analysis? And also, if you integrate these three, uh, which is education, formal or informal recognition of this education and assessment, how does this affect your interpretation and analysis of your research? Okay, so we'll just have some final comments from James, then Peter, and Michael can respond to us. Yeah. Just on the um, point raised about private schools, um, the schools, the type of schools that Michael and I were talking about are low-cost private schools which are not better resourced than the government schools. In fact, they're probably po more poorly resourced. For example, teacher salaries might be a fifth to a third in the low-cost private schools to the government schools, but they are outperforming the government schools. Um, the, the, we're talking about different models of education, and one of Michael's criticisms, I take it, of the existing model, really, is that it is a rigid, centralized model suiting maybe the elites, but not taking into account the sort of things that you were talking about, bringing in a much more holistic view of, 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 of human nature uh, into education system. Uh, I mean for what it's worth, I'm very much in favor of allowing you know, a, a thousand flowers to bloom in terms of curriculum, and I, I believe you can get that if you move away from this rigid state system. And then over here, we had this idea that um, you know, there is, it's a failed approach, you were saying, that you know, this systematic, systematic change is needed. What's very interesting to me is, on the, in the grassroots, on, amongst poor people themselves, they are agreeing with you, and they are voting with their feet outside of this system, which Michael is, um, is showing us is failing. Yeah, um, I'll use my 30 seconds uh, to, to make a point on, on Michael's um, comment about the rates of return to education. Um, Michael, you're totally right that uh, studies that control probability bias, such as Estadouglo's studies, uh, study on Indonesia using an instrumental variables method, does indeed show that when you control probability bias, if anything, the rate of return to education increases rather than falls. 
So uh, my comment on rate of return to education was not to do with the level of, you know, the, with the rate of return, the marginal rate of return to education, if you impose a linear relationship between schooling and years of education, right? Uh, that is indeed what, what she's doing. But if you allow for heterogeneity of returns at different levels of education, you find that the relationship is convex. It's very pronouncedly convex. Very, very low return to primary education and progressively more uh, higher returns for further levels of education. And that is my point, that primary level of education is not leading to a wage <coughs> increment. And you can do what you like. You can do twin studies. You can do instrumental variables. You can do whatever you'd like. It is not going to change because universally, at least for the about 30 countries or so in which I've reviewed the, the literature, it is particularly in the last 10 years, data sets using uh, data sets from the last 10 years, it is uh, very, very, very low or zero returns to primary education. So in, that's not to say that primary education is worthless and it's not, it hasn't that value. Because as James Hetman's work shows, a big part of the return to primary education is the fact that it allows you the option to go on to further levels of education which do have high returns. So you know, one is not inferring from this rate of determinantarian evidence that there is no return to primary, but the point about convexity uh, remains. And I mean, I just do say, can I say something on the, the learning development okay. You know, your point about targets being achievable, let's set targets that are achievable. Well, in a sense, you know, the MDG on education was not ambitious enough. You know, in one sense, it was too ambitious because we know that it's not going to be achieved. But in another, it, it missed out emphasis on those things that we know are important. So in that sense, it was not ambitious enough. No emphasis on quality, no learning goals, no emphasis on <coughs> post-primary levels of education, which we know are the levels of education that yield an economic return. Some final comments? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm looking at my, my glass here, and I said, you know, is it half empty or is it half full? Um, the, yeah, I, I don't think I would actually characterize the, first of all, in terms of, I don't, I, I think it's a total mischaracterization to say, to think that, you know, aid has failed because most spend, overwhelmingly spending that developing countries are doing on, on education is you know, their own money. That's, the, that's where the most money in, in education is coming from. Um, so, but, but second, is, you know, has the world as a whole, forget whether it's aid or, or the developing countries, have they succeeded or have they failed? Well, certainly there are many areas where they failed. But I also, I, I, would, I think this moving from a situation where a typical person had you know, a, little, you know, a year, a little bit of education to one where they've got six years of education, is it in low-income countries? Is a tremendous accomplishment. Partly that's because I, I think we would, pro you know, we'd probably have somewhat different interpretations of the evidence. I, you know, there are times when you know, a previous generation of analyses thought the returns were higher in primary education. There's been an explosion in inequality, um, so the returns to higher levels of education have gone up. I still think of this as having, you know, uh, positive estimates, but you know, things are. One could argue about these about these things. But there's also a whole, come back to this point of let's look, I actually completely agree we should be looking beyond just, uh, just income levels. If you look at social outcomes, and here we actually have a, a you know, there, there's lower fertility levels, better, better uh, position in the household for, for people who are educated, for women who are educated. Um, there's there's uh, better health outcomes for kids. <coughs> you know, just to take one example, typically that's not from, from where you really have a treatment group and a comparison group, for, but for this one one case where we have this, we found a pretty high, in, the, in going from sixth grade education to get have your seventh and eighth grade education paid for, um, these are preliminary results, but this led to a one quarter drop in 
in girls' acceptance of the right of, of men to be women and children within the household. You know, that's, I think, a very important outcome. And I, and I do think the economic outcomes are. So I think there's big success there. At the same time, you know, huge room for improvement on the quality side. Let me just, um, um, on, the, on this issue of a utilitarian model of education, I tended to focus in the short talk on test scores as outcomes, on school attendance as outcomes, but I think there's a lot of other things that you can measure. One of the key areas is trying to understand what the impact of different pedagogy is, and what's the impact of different approaches to training teachers. This is something where I think the jury is out. I think, um, and I, I think it's very important to remember, however, that we're, we're, the baseline is often the teacher not being there or the teacher teaching as was common in the school where I taught in Kenya by cop taking the textbook, copying the textbook on the blackboard and the students word for word and the students copy that in their exercise books. So you know, while I would like to see a holistic education, um, you know, maybe this, this, may, I think that's a debatable proposition and we need evidence on you know, what's the effect of something that may be very rigid but at least has the teacher there and has the students in teaching things that the students at the appropriate level for the, for the students, maybe not in a you know, totally new way, versus something that is very much more open. I think that's something we can get evidence on. And we can get evidence not just on test score outcomes, but community involvement, uh, all sorts of other, other outcomes. There's a, I think we, there's, there's lots of opportunities to, we've learned, we've learned a fair amount. There's opportunities to learn a lot more. And there's some of these things are going to require are going to require very massive political changes, and and you know those you know, we we should we should be thinking about how to do them. A lot of these things, you know, with a little bit of resources and a little bit of political will, we can do right now and make a real difference in the lives of children. Thanks. Okay, I'm afraid we have to stop there, but um, that was a great session. Uh, I think we should thank the speaker and the discussants in the usual way.